Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Pulitzer Prize-winning technology journalist John Markov. John is the author of the fascinating new biography of futurist Stuart Brand entitled Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. The book, which is the result of many years of research, including hours of one-on-one interviews with Brand himself, is a powerful story of Brand's extraordinary life and its intersection with American innovation and technology. John. Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I thought long and hard about how to organize today's conversation, since as your book's title alludes, Stuart Brand's life doesn't follow a typical script. He's involved in so many different movements and and technological and social developments that a question like, tell me about Stuart Brand, is not particularly useful. Let's start at a basic level. When did you first encounter Brand? And what got you interested in him? Well, that's very, that's, there's actually a very funny story. When you say encounter, I knew about Stuart Brand from college onward. I grew up around Stanford and there was this thing called the Whole Earth Truck Store when I was in college. And so I, I, I saw the catalog. I was in the truck store, but, and I knew of Brand. But actually, the story of my first encounter, which was not a meeting, Uh, I was a young reporter at a weekly computer paper called InfoWorld, and they sent me to a huge trade show called Comdex. And I had been a starving freelance writer for many years before that. And so, you know, John Doerr, who was a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, called uh, the personal computer industry the largest legal accumulation of wealth in history. And so I was really struck by that. I was in Las Vegas. I went to a party hosted by the Epson Printer Company. And I was standing in front of the largest bowl of cooked shrimp I'd ever seen in my life. And on the other side, I recognized Stuart Brand. And Brand, of course, was there because he'd started something called the Holer Software Catalog, which turned out to be a disaster. But uh, it sort of framed everything for me because we were both being sucked into this new industry that was, uh, you know, vibrant and 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 more than anything else, full of wealth, creating wealth and showing off wealth. And I, you know, both of us came out of the counterculture, so it was quite a shock. Brand was a Midwesterner, but something drew him to Silicon Valley before it was even called Silicon Valley. What did Brand see there? And what role did he play in cultivating the heterodox culture that has enabled such explosive technological innovation? Yeah, there's there's a bunch there. Um, so he did grow up west of Chicago. He summered at a, a beautiful place called uh, Higgins Lake. He had a very Hemingway-esque childhood, but his brother had gone to Stanford and that brought him to Stanford. So he had sort of two intersections with Stanford. 
what I found really striking and that I, I think I sort of discovered because he gave me a, a journal that he hadn't given to Stanford when he gave most of his papers to Stanford in 2000. He gave it to me in 2017. And it was an account of what he did on the Mid-Peninsula around Stanford in that period before he started the whole Earth catalog, that year in 1967. And Brand had lived in San Francisco. Then he briefly considered going back to the land. Remember, everybody of his generation was in the process of being more rural. He, he helped start a commune in the Southwest, but decided he really didn't like a rural life. So he showed up in Menlo Park, California, which was basically ground zero for Silicon Valley in 1966, 67. And that was quite striking. Uh, he has this reputation of being Zelig-like. He's always, For many years, he was the right place at the right time to either start a new trend or arrive in the middle of a new trend. And he wrote in his journal, you know, I've come here to, it wasn't Silicon Valley till 1971, but he showed up when all the forces that would create Silicon Valley were underway. And something about some sixth sense that he had called him there. He came here, he wrote, I come here to let my technology happen. He wanted a world technology education, he wrote in his journal. And so it really reframed, because, you know, you mentioned you know, what was his role in this technological culture that merged. And, you know, there are a lot of people sort of give, I think, false credit to Brand for being sort of the first of the technological utopianism in the Valley. I came to look at it the, in the exact opposite way. Brand's Whole Earth Catalog was in some ways a product of the forces that created Silicon Valley, which was quite striking to me because I hadn't looked at it that way. Um, John, we'll come back to the Whole Earth Catalog uh, later in the conversation. But before we get there, one thing that listeners may not be familiar with about Brand is his relationship with American Indian culture. He was, of course, married at one point to an Indian woman. How did this relationship to American Indian culture shape his worldview and perspective? So he had grown up in the Michigan backcountry with some contact with the remnants of Native Americans, American Indians. And so he had sort of a sense about Indians, but he didn't really understand the Indians deeply until in uh, 1963, he was a struggling young want-to-be photographer, and he got an assignment to help a group of American Indians who were on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation uh, in the center of Oregon develop a brochure because they were trying to find ways to bring tourism to the reservation. And so he went up there to photograph a, a wild horse roundup. And he didn't really know much about this culture. And in fact, you know, if you thought about the three or four decades before that, America was really trying to suppress the Native American culture. They wanted to integrate Indians into, a, you know, mainstream middle-class American culture. And what he discovered was this culture he'd never seen. You know, he grew up a white middle-class kid. He was uh, upper-class, uh, educated Exeter and Stanford. And he found this uh, culture that was much more in tune with the land that they lived on, uh, in tune with their environment, committed to protecting it. And he came away with a, ve a very different sense in a sense that he, he framed in this multimedia slideshow he would ultimately uh, create called America Needs Indians. And the historians give him credit for sort of reframing that policy conversation in America and uh, playing a role in protecting the Indian culture. I mean, he'd grown up, like most of us, thinking about cowboys and Indians. And when he was up there on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation, he discovered that there were Indian cowboys uh, who really were close to the land. And 
you know, Brand had also stumbled across this pledge that was an Outdoor Life magazine as a seven or eight-year-old, I guess an eight-year-old, that was uh, basically a pledge to make it part of your uh, sort of reason for existence to protect the environment. And so that connected very closely with what he saw on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. You mentioned a couple of times in your answers, John, Brand's commitment to environmentalism. Um, you've described him in the book. He's been described elsewhere as an eco-pragmatist. What does that mean? And how does it differ from the kind of animating ideas of the modern or the contemporary environmental movement? So he was instrumental in the creation of the modern environmental movement in the 1970s. There had been earlier threads in American uh, history, but Brand, you know, the, this new movement emerged in part from this idea of the sort of the impact of seeing the whole earth and realizing that we're as you know a single species and that we're sort of woven into the the fabric of this planet that we live on. So then in 2007 uh, he wrote uh, wrote this this book called Whole Earth Discipline in which he came up with this notion of eco-pragmatism that sort of differentiated himself from some of the uh, people in the environmental movement that he felt were anti-technological. Brand has been optimistic about technologies all the way through. He split with the environmental movement that he had created over issues like GMO food, nuclear power, dense urban cities, and geoengineering. And he wrote this book that sort of got him sort of cast out of part of the environmental movement. So that's eco-pragmatism is his notion of you, you do what works and, um, you know, you follow the science and you iterate. And, you know, that he's, he's still, I mean, you know, he's still at odds with old friends within the environmental movement like Amory and Lovins, particularly over nuclear power. And it's interesting to see the debate here in America over nuclear power has kind of, you know, there are many environmentalists who now have sort of taken a, well, we have to get across this chasm as quickly as we can to stop burning fossil fuels. And if we have to use nuclear power, that's that's okay. A larger group of the environmental movement has taken that position, I think, than once did. One more kind of big picture question before we get into the Whole Earth Project and some of the other big accomplishments over the course of Brand's life. The story of Brand is a story of a first mover. He's ahead of the curve on the personal computer. He's an early leader in the psychedelic culture. There's so many other examples where he seems to be able to read the future. Based on your research, were you able to discern where that ability came from? Yeah, we, we, we talked a lot about that. And he winces at the term futurism, even though you know, he has that reputation. He knows he has that reputation. It sort of came out of this book he wrote in 1987 called The Media Lab about Nicholas Negroponte's laboratory at MIT that focused on future digital technologies. And Stuart wrote a very optimistic book about that. He feels that, uh, I think if you ask Brand, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't call himself a futurist. He likes to think of himself as a pragmatist. And within his organization that he's created most recently called the Long Now Foundation, his notion is you, once again, you iterate on what works, which is different than those people who have this grand plan for the future that they try to work work toward. But in terms of his ability to see things that others might miss early on, I actually think that's because he has this, uh, he's idiosyncratic and he often sort of is an outsider. He intentionally goes in another direction. And if you go in another direction and don't follow the pack, you have a chance to see things that others might not see. And I think that actually has made a difference. I mean, 
I, I used to say uh, when I was a daily reporter covering Silicon Valley that the visionaries were always wrong because there was this herd mentality about sort of what's the next big thing in Silicon Valley. And it, often it wasn't. Uh, people were often surprised about what the next big thing was. And I think Stuart, a couple of times, more than a couple of times, uh, saw things early on. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let's come to the whole Earth Project now. John, some of our listeners, particularly our younger listeners, may not be familiar with it or its cultural significance. What was the whole Earth Project and how ubiquitous was it in terms of its relationship to American culture generally and the culture of Silicon Valley in particular? The Whole Earth Catalog uh, was a project that Stewart started. Initially, he got this idea after his father died, and he was trying to figure out how he could help his friends who were going back to communes. And he decided that what they needed was information on how to do things. And so he came up uh, with this idea of a Whole Earth truck store. It was this notion that he would drive around with books and tools and sell things to his friends. And he tried that a couple of times during the summer of 1968 from his base in Menlo Park. And immediately really realized that that wasn't going to work because his friends on the communes didn't have any money. So he was going to sell them. So he pivoted to this idea of a catalog and the catalog took off spectacularly. And it was, it had seven sections. It had sections on things like mobility and, uh, I mean, nomadics and uh, housing and learning. Uh, It was just an eclectic mix of, of, of things that Stuart found and there were little mini reviews. He would pay $10 a review. He found section editors, and then he, he would get, they would get people who would submit these items on tools or books or ideas that they thought were you know, neat or cool. And the only positive ones, there weren't negative reviews in, in this catalog. And it started uh, with a publication of the, so there were, there were very, he only ran this for three years. And it started small. Initially, I think there were 20,000 copies of the first issue published. The uh, bookstores didn't know what to do with it because it was this odd size and they didn't know where to put it. But it touched a nerve. And ultimately, over the next three years, there were two issues of the catalog published a year and then two supplements. He wanted it to be interactive. And so the supplements were feedback that came from people who read the catalog. And uh, ultimately, there were 3 million copies printed in just three years. It won the National Book Award after he shut it down in 1972. But the, you know, the point was, it was in every living room and bathroom all over America, actually around the world. I mean, it just, it, it just spread everywhere. And I can't tell you how many people, while I was working on this project, I would run into from my generation who would say, well, I stumbled across something in the catalog, and it sent my life in this orthogonal direction. It really was this kind of fantasy amplifier for people, and it also sort of gave people to sort of reinvent their lives and do things that were outside of the cookie-cutter 1950s career-oriented American life. It touched an entire generation, and of course, then it gradually went away. And so you're right that uh, when I—there's a big white space when you ask people if they've heard of Stuart Rand or the catalog— 
Uh, Steve Jobs tried to call it Google before Google, which I thought was nice, although I think that's a little bit wrong. It was more about serendipity rather than looking for something. It was just what you stumbled across. Why did he stop its publication or at least try to sell its rights to someone else to, to carry it on? Why did it come to an end in spite of its massive popularity? What he said was publicly that he was trying to stop something at the top rather than letting it sort of fade away. That's what he said. That was the public statement on the Dick Cavett show um, when Cavett asked him that question. The reality was that his life was kind of falling apart. He decided he was going to cancel the or end the whole Earth catalog after the first year. He was married to Lois Jennings, who was the co-inventor of the whole Earth catalog. He finally gave her credit for that in, at a reunion 50 years after the the catalog was created. Their relationship was in was in trouble. It was actually crumbling, and uh, the catalog was a huge burden for him. He was he's he's always struggled with depression in his life, and he was struggling with depression. He was uh, thinking about suicide, and so he just wanted to get rid of the burden of this project that got that was more and more of a burden as it got more and more successful. It was just this all-encompassing thing. And he kind of shut down and and ended it with something called the Demise Party, which was held in San Francisco and was a kind of quirky event. Another aspect of Brand's life is that, while he was something of an anti-establishment figure, he does spend time in the California governor's office of Jerry Brown from 1977 to 79. How did this experience in politics and government shape him in the years that followed? So he was close to Ken Kesey, a, a well-known author who was part of the counterculture. So he was chronicled in Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And Kesey at one point criticized Stewart in an article in the Washington Post for wanting to cleave to power. So Brown, he met at the San Francisco Zen Center. He was tasked in Brown's first administration, 1976, to basically be the person to bring interesting people into the administration as a a path to get new ideas in, and he did a spectacular job of this. Now, he had, before coming to Brown's office and during the period when which he uh, ran the whole Earth Catalog, he'd been a bit of a libertarian. He had initially been attracted to Ayn Rand's ideas, but that had already fallen apart. But then when he got inside Brown's administration, he, re- he realized that he saw the value of good government. And so he, you know, it really kind of flipped him around on, on, uh, and he even moved more in that direction later on when he wrote uh, Whole Earth Discipline. And he, you know, and I guess that's kind of mainstream. He once called himself a conservative to me in, in our interviews, but a conservative who couldn't read the Wall Street Journal because he hated their editorial pages. So what kind of a conservative is that? He's not a neoliberal. I mean, you know, there are people from England, uh, these uh, British Marxists who talked about the Silicon Valley ideology, and they sort of asserted he was a fellow traveler. But neoliberals don't see the value of government. I think Brand is someone who believes in capitalism with guardrails. And that, to me, that makes him a liberal in the classic, you know, traditional sense of the word. In more recent years, as you mentioned earlier, John, Brand has become associated with a movement focused on the long term by which he and others mean not years, but centuries and beyond. What is the significance of Brand's long-termism, and how has it influenced others in Silicon Valley? So the idea that he began this organization, the Long Now Foundation, came from uh, a man by the name of Danny Hillis, who designed supercomputers. Danny had been MIT, at MIT. He'd met Stuart at MIT. 
And Danny decided that the consequence of this networked world with these accelerating computer technologies was that people were not thinking long-term in our society. American society in particular was sort of seized with quarterly results and ever-accelerating computer technologies. And so he approached a bunch of his friends with this idea. Danny even took me out on a long walk to explain this idea of a mechanical clock that would run for 10,000 years, ticking only once a year, where the cuckoo came out, I think, once a century. And I just didn't get it. But Stuart was one of the few people who came back and said, you know, if you're building this clock, you need a library. And Brand's idea was um, the importance of the continuity of institutions like library for, for civilization uh, that he brought to this project. And, you know, whatever you think of the clock, it's almost built now. Uh, they've almost completed the first major clock. It's a prototype. Uh, Jeff Bezos paid for it, the world's, formerly the world's richest man. It's in a mountain on uh, the the property of Bezos's spaceport in southwestern Texas, it is one of the wonders of the world. It's a remarkable idea. Uh, it's a you know it's a provocation. They want to uh, you know the the best example of sort of the value of long term thinking that they cite in this long now foundation is the story about Oxford University, where a number of years ago one of the buildings on campus the roof wore out with these giant timbers and they began to wonder where they were going to find these giant timbers and so they asked the the university forester they had a forester and he said oh my sirs i wondered where you when you were going to ask us they had actually planted a forest 600 years previously just for this purpose and that's the value of long-term thinking uh, so so and it's taken uh, interesting directions in out of the Long Now Foundation, he and his wife, Ryan Phelan, spun out this organization called Revive and Restore, which has become very controversial because George Church, the Harvard uh, biologist, has talked about and is trying to bring back a woolly, woolly mammoth. And that's made everybody think about Jurassic Park. However, I think the more interesting thing that they're doing is they're working with ecologists and molecular biologists and geneticists to develop technologies that will help sustain species that are in, in endangered niches because of climate change. Coral is the, uh, the classic example where they're trying to, to breed corals that are more resistant to bleaching uh, as a result of, uh, of climate change. So he's involved in that, and he's working on a book now on uh, the importance of maintenance for civilizations. One of the extraordinary things about Brand's career is just his durability. This is someone who, as we've discussed, was at the center of action before Silicon Valley with Silicon Valley. And today, younger generations of technologists and entrepreneurs like Patrick Collison and others continue to be influenced by uh, brands, ideas, and thinking. What do you think has contributed to this extraordinary durability over his life? A, a big part of it is his ability to reinvent himself and go in different directions. You, you know, I, th I thought a lot about that because he was... He called himself upper class, but I never saw him as being wealthy in any kind of a, a traditional upper class way, being a playboy or anything like that. His family gave him just enough money so that he didn't have to get a day job. So he was able to avoid you know, getting a conventional career. And as a result, he could follow these crazy ideas. I mean, you know, he, he himself will tell you he has a lot of bad ideas. And every once in a while, he'll have one that, that resonates, that catches on, that has impact. And he, he did that repeatedly. He, I think it helps to be extremely curious. He was intellectually curious. And he was willing to take these risks. And there was a bit of, maybe he got it out of the military. He was clearly, a, no, he was a leader even earlier. He, even as a child, I, I talked to some of the people who grew up with him. And they called him um, Screwy Stewie. 
And the reason he was called Screwy Stewie is because he always, he was a nonstop font of crazy ideas. And every time, every once in a while, he had a great notion. Just a penultimate question. You know, one of the things I thought about as I read the book was the virtues and benefits of weirdness. You know, we have a culture these days that, you know, I think some listeners would see as conformist and conventional. What does Stuart Brand's career tell us about weirdness and the way in which it can ignite ideas and technologies and, and so on? I know that's really, you know, so uh, there was a bit of brand family wisdom. Uh, If you toss a brand in the river, they'll float upstream. And he took pride in the fact that, uh, you know, he wasn't a conformist. He was never a a dramatic nonconformist in the most flamboyant sense. But, you know, as a Stanford student, you know, completely middle class uh, institution, he discovered the North Beach scene. He discovered the beatniks uh, in the 1950s, and he was really drawn to that. Uh, you know, they were out of step with the, 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 you know, the world that he'd grown up in in Chicago. They just they flabbergasted his parents. He, there were these letters from his dad castigating him for associating with these people, but he didn't back down. Um, he explored these avenues um, all within this framework of, you know, there was this larger continuity and framework of protecting the environment. But well, just recently, when the first event I did in a book thing, I, he, we, uh, he a couple of times he did interviews with me, joint interviews. I, I didn't push him, but this was fun. And we were up on stage at this fancy place in San Francisco called the Jazz Center and I was telling a story, and to illustrate the story, he lit a dollar bill on stage, and we completely <laughs> freaked out. I mean, this was like going to set off the fire alarms and call the fire marshals, but he was willing to do that. It was good theater, actually. It didn't set off the fire alarms. To wrap up, what would you say is Brand's legacy or ought to be his legacy? It's about this original notion about seeing the whole earth. You know, he he talked about the value of the whole earth as a symbol, it broke America. The symbol of the 50s was the mushroom cloud. The symbol of the 70s, 60s, and 70s uh, was the whole earth. And the value of that symbol is it's the one symbol I can think of that unifies the human species. Every other symbol I can think of divides us. And I think of that is what Stuart is associated with. It's an important legacy and one that's of value, particularly today. <laughs> Well, if you want to hear that story and, and many others, I recommend you read Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. John Markoff, congratulations again on the book, and thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.